0: Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us, um, especially those of you in the hall, taking time out to come despite the traffic, the cold, you know, um, wanting to sleep in bed, all of those things. And um, also for those who are at home, thank you for joining us. I know that many of you would have loved to come, but um, rain and, you know, different things have, have stopped that. So, what we've been doing over the last few weeks is going through the book of Galatians and just seeing how the gospel is rich and the gospel is sufficient and the gospel is adequate really for all of life and all of our circumstances. And so all through the book, Paul is at pains because of false teaching that the Galatians have experienced to show how the false teachings corrupt the gospel. They try to supplement the gospel, but actually they end up creating something else. And that thing that is created cannot actually deal with what's wrong with us and cannot carry us through as we go through life. And so Paul continues. We'll see um, in the passage today, Paul continues talking about that, but he moves to a different kind of argument. Now, to help us understand what, Paul, um, what, what we'll be looking at today, I don't know about you guys, but um, our culture generally is just one of parties. We love parties, particularly if you are in a city like Lagos um, um, or other parts of the country. We love parties, and any excuse to have a party we, 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 we take hold of it. So people have parties for um, loss of a loved one. See, someone has died. And people are meant to be sad that morning, but uh, it's, it's an opportunity to have a party, right? And so we celebrate. Um, my son just finished convocation um, graduation from university. We celebrate. I just got a new job. We celebrate. Um, my child has now moved from nursery to primary school. We celebrate. I kid you not, someone did that. And so we have all kinds of reasons to celebrate. We have all kinds of parties that we throw. But there's one that isn't common, and it's high school or university reunions. People don't do that a lot. Like, usually, that one, you have to wait for several years to pass before you do that like, five years, 10 years, 25 years. You know, we have now reached the top of our careers, and so now we can celebrate. And why do we do that? We do that because we feel like we're still building, that there are building blocks. There are still things that we're trying to set in place. And so let's wait. Let's wait first. Particularly if you finish school and you are still trying to get a job, you are still trying to make sense of your life. Like everybody thought you that know, you finished with first class or two-one, like you should have landed this job, and you didn't. And so you don't want to appear before your class to meet. You don't want to show that you are still you know, trying and patching things together. But eventually, when we have the high school reunion or the university reunion after a number of years, there are two things that we usually notice. We usually notice that those who were most likely to succeed or most likely for anything have become the least likely. And those who are the least likely to achieve or accomplish or people that are people discarded, they are people who have now become the most likely to succeed. What do I mean? So. um, Obviously, in any school, university or secondary school, you usually have those people that everybody's looking at, those people that are the rave in class, those people that are the bright brains, or the fine guys and girls. And I remember there was, for me, there was a girl that we all loved. We all loved in GS2 because, man, she was really pretty. I mean people like me, the proletariats in class, we knew that there was no way that we could you know come near her so just look and admire from afar and you know just just keep it there. But there were the guys who were actively chasing. there were the people who were you know going after the person. And then we saw the person after a number of years, and some of you can relate, like this person who was the beauty queen in class, who was this has now become Somebody with a lot of pimples, somebody who doesn't look as attractive as they were, you know, the person who was the bright brain has now become the person that nobody really wants to associate with. But the people who people didn't care about in class, the person that was always smelling of fish early in the morning, or the person that was always sweating at 7 a.m. that nobody had any explanation for why, those are the people that land all jobs. Those are the people that are working in that top five you know, company, and all of those things. The people who were the most likely to succeed have become the least likely. And the people who were the least likely to succeed have become the most likely. And the more you think about it, you realize that something has happened. Not just that time has passed, but that something, a certain resource, particularly for those who become, who were the least likely, who have now become the most likely. Something has happened to them, there is, if you like, a grace that has been made available to them. And as we look at this passage today, that's what Paul actually says. Paul says that there is a grace that makes people who have become the least, who were the least likely, who were people that nobody really cared about, people that people didn't send, like we say. They have now become people that grace has been made available to. And so I've called this sermon, Grace for the Unlikely. And as Paul is arguing, Paul presents two classes of people, as we've been seeing throughout this um, sermon series. Paul had been talking about people who believe in the free grace of the gospel and people who are trying to, you know, um, walk other people into slavery. Paul has been talking about the genuine gospel and other kinds of gospels. And here again today, Paul talks about two kinds of people. But in doing so, he's talking about two women, and we'll see more later on. But as Paul presents this to us, he, he's asking us three questions, really, so that we can appreciate what grace is and what grace does. He says, first, where is your source? Because only true grace, only grace gives and has a potent power. He says, where is your identity? Because only true grace can reconfigure our status. And he says, where is your hope? Because only true grace guarantees us an incredible inheritance and so those are the three things we'll be considering this morning that grace is a potent power grace is a reconfigured status and grace guarantees us an incredible inheritance let's pray as we ask as we start and ask god for help lord we need you this morning we want to just ask that you come in all your power and all your glory and show yourself strong and mighty Reveal yourself to us, O oh God, so that we can see you, we can love you, we can follow you, we can treasure you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so the first one is a potent power, a potent power. Now if you start reading from verses 21 to 23, you see Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. And you see here, like I said, Paul is responding to the arguments that have been put forward by the false teachers. You see, the false teachers were people who were Jewish, and then were asking the the non-Jewish people to be like them, to become essentially Jewish people before they can access the grace of God. And one of the arguments they have been putting forward is that to really be a Jewish person, to really be a true son of God, is to be a child of Abraham. And Paul is showing us here, as we see later on, that yes, it means to be a child of Abraham, but really there are two kinds of children of Abraham. There's the child of Abraham that was born as a result of striving to a slave woman um, by effort. Her name is Hagar. And there was the child of Abraham that was born as the result of trusting in a divine promise, or a promised child. And that child is Isaac, who was born to Sarah. And so I've put up um, a table to help us um, to just understand the flow of the passage as we go on. But you see, this, this argument Paul is making really comes from Genesis Genesis chapter 16 to 21. So Pastor Femi says he's the chief storytelling chief story, chief chief whatever that tells stories. I'm not going to try to tell stories this morning um, because I don't know how to. But Paul is here telling us a story, and that story is found in Genesis 16 to 21. You see, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God had called Abraham. God had appeared to him. Abraham wasn't looking for God. Abraham wasn't searching for God. God himself initiated the act. God called Abraham and said, leave where you are and and follow me, and I will show you a land where you dwell so Abraham ups and leaves with his family, and he begins to go. And then God reveals himself again to him in chapter 15. And God says to him, in chapter 12, God had said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And so along the line, Abraham is thinking, oh, wow, okay, God says he's going to make me a great nation. That, that, because by this time, Abraham is 75. Abraham is thinking, um, yeah, most likely, it, it's definitely not coming from me. It's most likely going to come from my male servant, Eliezer. And so in chapter 15, verse 4, Abraham tells God that, yes, you said so, but my servant is there. Just consider him. And God says to him, no, I'm going to actually give you a child of your own. But like you and I, Abraham and his wife said, okay, we trust God. We're waiting. We're believing. And then day one passes. Day two passes. Ah, this child has not come. Day three. Therefore, 10 years elapse. this child hasn't come. And so Sarah has a brainwave one day. We see in Genesis 16, verses 1 to 4. Sarah has a brainwave one day. And while the passage is being put up, thank you. Sarah has a brainwave one day. She says to Abraham, verse 2, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said now you and I may be like why why didn't you just wait why didn't you just trust God but you have to realize what is going on here at this point in time 10 years at the last from the time God had originally told them what he was going to do and so Abraham had become 85 Abraham was getting old. Sarah was just 10 years younger. Sarah becomes 75. I don't know if you've seen any 85-year-olds around lately. They're not trying to have children. And so when God says to you that he's going to give you a child of yours, your brain starts working and you feel like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe God was actually saying that we should, you should, we should use another method. We should use another source to bring this child about. And so Sarah devices this means she uses her slave Her servant lady called Hagar, and the child comes. But then now, like, you you have to give it to this Hagar and Sarah. Like, this is just like African magic. Because Hagar produces the child, and then Hagar starts wearing 50 50 shoulder pad. What my madame cannot do, I can do. Oga has married me. I'm going to show this, Madame Pepe. And so the Bible tells us in chapter in chapter sixteen of Genesis that Sarah said, "See what this woman has done," and she sent her away. Eventually, in Genesis twenty one, after a number of years, another fifteen years, God brings His promise about, and Sarah puts to, to bed, and she has a child called Isaac. And so you see all these characters again as we go on in the story. But you see, it's worth pointing out here, friends, that. We can look at Sarah. We can say to Sarah and Abraham, like, hey, why didn't you guys just wait? Why didn't you guys just trust God? Why didn't you guys just believe what God said? But if we're honest with ourselves, it's the same thing with us. If we're honest with ourselves, we're always calculating, like, yes, I know this is what God said. I know this is what God has promised. But it seems like time is going. Something, the, 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 the promise, the details are not adding up. Maybe I should try to help God. You see, we're often concerned about the destination, whereas God is just as concerned about the process. God is not just concerned in getting us where we want to go and where he wants us to go, but God is also concerned in who we are becoming along the way as we are journeying along. And you see, this is the problem with the, 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 Galatian, um, the false teachers in Galatia. They, they just want these people to become something. They don't care about what God has said and what process God has in place. They just want them, these Galatian Christians, to become what they want them to become. And you see, Paul shows us here that anytime we are like that, anytime we are jumping ahead to the end, anytime we are thinking just in terms of a destination, we are not understanding what the grace of God is and what the grace of God does. Because, you see, the people that don't believe in the grace of God, they are all, all just concerned about what they can do, how much change they can bring about, what they can achieve by themselves, rather than trusting in God's own power, what God himself can produce. But, you see, part of the reasons, friends, why we don't actually appreciate the grace of God is because generally, generally, we have issues with free stuff. And I'm not talking about you are driving along the express and you see that they, there's a new petrol station that has opened and they are declaring free full tanks for the first 50 people to get there. And you just want to take advantage of it. No, no. Generally, we have issues with free stuff. Like, we just feel like if somebody is giving me something free, it says something about me. It says something about my ability to be able to earn this thing. And so we like to measure up. We like to kind of respond back to what people give us. And there's something good about that. There's something about recognizing that, yes, there's, somebody has been generous to you. Somebody has given you something, and you want to respond in a certain way. But you see, there's something also that can be incredibly seductive and dangerous about that. We feel that we can earn our way back to measure up to the gift that we have received. Paul shows us that the grace of God that comes to us is a generous gift that cannot we cannot produce in and of ourselves. We cannot produce by our own striving. We cannot produce by our own efforts. You see, a person who receives grace from God is like someone who has just been given, dashed, and oil-filled. How much do you think you can be paid back for that? And yet, because of Christ, God gives us much more, a million times more than anybody who has received an oil field generously. You see, our efforts is like somebody who is drowning. And the person is drowning but trying to save themselves at the same time. It cannot produce anything. You have to recognize that I'm helpless. I need help. And someone outside yourself brings that help to you. So where are you trusting your effort this morning? Where are you relying on your own schemes and what you can Produce by yourselves and just come up with something as a way of earning God's favor. But you see, we also see here part of reasons why Sarah was struggling, was making this effort, was trying to earn something or do what God Himself had promised is because she was being impatient. And many times that impatience shows up in our own lives, in how we respond to things in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. We look at ourselves and we say, yes, God has stipulated in his word how I'm meant to live my life. God has given me certain guidelines by which I'm meant to conduct myself. But like this thing doesn't make sense in 21st century Lagos. So what do we do? We come up with our own ways, our own rules, so that we can produce what God himself has said he will produce. We're trying to supplement God's commands. So, Bud, you know the Bible says very clearly that I shouldn't get married to someone who is not a Christian. But you feel like, yes, maybe I can, I can, it can be my mission project. It can be this person that I'm actually evangelizing and I'm striving to win them back to Christ. And so you try to walk around God's commands as a way of coming up to your own standards achieving what God wants you to do or maybe it's your job or your career and everybody around you is everybody around you is doing different things and you just feel like I mean I'm missing out how can I help God do what God can do in my life how can I be smart be creative all of these things we are being impatient as a way of working our way to God's favor bringing about what God himself has said he will do And what Paul is showing us is that all of those things, they don't have any potency in and of themselves. They don't have any power in and of themselves to produce what God himself has guaranteed. You see, we fall into a trap sometimes of thinking about the fact that, yes, the grace of God starts us off as we journey in life, starts us off as we become Christians. But somehow, it's like switching gears. You start with gear one if you are driving a manual car. But somehow, to get to this... High, smooth cruise. I have to replace God's grace or at least add to God's grace with my own efforts and my own striving. But friend, you see, what it means to be a Christian is not to rely less and less on grace. It is to rely more and more on grace. Because for the Christian, grace is like air. Grace is what you need to survive. The older you get, the more air you take, the more you depend on air because you realize how insufficient you are in and of yourselves. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And so someone named Dallas Willard has said, To grow in grace means to utilize more and more grace to live by until everything we do is assisted by grace. The greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume more grace, who indeed are most in need of grace, those who are, who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being. Grace to them is like breath. And so you realize, Lord, I, I just, I need you. Like, yes, things may not be going out in my own timelines. Things may not be working out the way I've scheduled on my calendar and my projections for the next five years. But Lord, I'm relying on your grace. But you see, part of the reasons why we are also, we also like to work out things. We also like to strive and use our own efforts is because we are also impatient with God's work in other people. And you can test this particularly in two areas. So if you're a parent, you, you realize how frustrating it is to actually raise up another human being. Or if you're an older sibling, you realize how frustrating it is when these other people that you've told something to do, call children. You've told what to do like a billion times over, and they still keep doing the same thing. Or maybe there's a colleague of yours that you're, you're supervising and you've advised, you've counseled, you've done this, and you're frustrated again and again. Part of the reasons why we're frustrated with other people is because we're trying to produce in them what only God can produce in them. We think that somehow it's just by giving them good advice, giving them good tips, modifying their behavior, telling them to do the right things. And that is how somehow they will become the kind of people who have earned the grace of God or who, for whom God's graces are working their lives. And Paul says, no, grace actually comes not by our own striving, not by our own effort, not by scheming and devising other things, but it is only by relying on the grace of God. So friends, the question for you is where are you relying on your own efforts? Where are you trusting your efforts to do what God alone can do? Where are you trusting your efforts to produce a certain kind of righteousness in your own life and in other people's lives? Where are you most frustrated with other people? Where are you most frustrated in your own life? And how are you not relying on the grace of God there? If you're like me and you see like, men, I'm... impatient sometimes i struggle with with just believing that my efforts can produce this thing there are three things that we can do that can help us first is actively look out for evidences of god's grace in the lives of other people like with the same zeal and intensity with which you look out for the faults of other people use that same zeal and intensity to look out for the grace of god in other people's lives because you know what the more you look out for the grace of God in other people's lives, the more you see it. And the thing about grace is that the more we see it, actually, the more humble we become because we recognize that, man, this person, God is at work in this person in a different way than he is at work in me. And I'm not complete yet. I'm not total yet. I'm not whole yet. And so if God hasn't given up on that person, then I shouldn't give up on them either. So actively look out for evidences of God's grace in other people. But secondly, also, Ask God, beg God for friends who can tell you the truth. And when they tell you the truth, don't punish them for it. You know, some of us, we have this overinflated sense of ourselves, of our importance, and of our own whatever. That when people actually tell us the truth, we just give them an arm's length. But you see, we can never become the kind of people that God has called us to be in isolation. There are many things about yourself. There are many things about yourself that you cannot see unless you're actively asking God through his work in other people to speak to your own hearts and lives as well. So are you the kind of person that has friends who can tell you the truth? Are you the kind of person that when they tell you the truth, you just sideline them? You X them. And so your friends feel like they constantly have to work on eggshells around you just so that, you know, our relationship can be well managed. But lastly, also meditate on the scandalous grace of God in Christ. You see, often we don't realize how much of a scandal God's grace is that God actually looks at you, 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 you. And he wants you. That God looks at me with all my faults and brokenness and he doesn't say, no, this guy, again, thousandth times, I vexed him. You know, our Obsession with cancel culture is partly, partly, in fact, mostly due to the fact that we don't actually know what grace is and what God's grace produces. So meditate on the scandal that is the grace of God in Christ. But secondly, what we see here, Paul shows us, is that grace gives us a reconfigured status. Grace gives us a reconfigured status. Now, generally, in cultures around the world, there's a fascination with certain gestures, Um, So what do I mean? So if you are in the West, for instance, you are walking the streets um, and you come in contact with someone, you hit someone, and the person looks at you and raises their middle finger to you, they are not greeting you in case you don't know. They are not saying hello. right? They are expressing utter disdain for you. If you are in the Middle East, and some of us might remember this, um, a couple of years ago, when George Bush was um, president, he was in Iraq and he was at the height of the Iraq war, and all of the U.S. involvement there. And I think he had gone to give a speech, and someone just, from the crowd, someone just removed, man, like someone just removed a shoe and threw it at him, and he hit George Bush. The person was not trying to call his attention. The person was expressing utter disdain for him. But there's one that, in our own culture, particularly in the Yoruba culture, but I think many more um, cultures across Nigeria, like, like his general, if someone looks at you and raises up their hand towards you, and stretches their five fingers at you. <laughs> no, it's not a high five. They are not greeting you. They are saying something. And what they are saying is not just about you. They are talking about your momsi. And you know there's nothing that gets a Nigerian work, worked up like abusing their mother. Like you can be a coward. You might never know how to fight. But once they talk about your mother, power just comes. How can you talk about what I just break (laughs) butto? And that's a little bit of what Paul is doing here. Because what Paul is doing here, like I said earlier, the Galatians had been talking about how that, yes, to be a child of God is to be a child of Abraham. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You guys think you are being biblical. No, you are not being biblical enough, because we see that there are two kinds of Abraham's children. There's a child of Abraham that comes from the slave woman, and there's a child of Abraham that comes from from the free woman who is your mama? That's what Paul is asking the Galatians. And we see on the table here, Paul says, there is a Hagar is the the slave woman, while Sarah is the free woman. And in terms of their childbearing, Hagar is the one who is actually fruitful, but Sarah is the one who is barren. And so in 23 to 26, Paul expands on this a little bit more. And I don't want to talk about it as as much because we've talked about slavery a lot in the last few weeks and how that, if we are trusting in the law of God to fulfill us, the law of God to earn our way to God, to commend ourselves to God, we're actually being slaves. And all of us can sit here and say, no, 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 I'm not a slave. I'm not bound up. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm actually a child of God. But Paul presents two tests in verses 29 and 30 to actually show whether the grace of God has come to you and whether that grace has reconfigured your status. Look at verse 29. He says, At that time, the Son born according to the flesh, persecuted the Son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. The son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born according to the spirit. It is the same. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, if the grace of God has come to you, if the grace of God has altered your status, if the grace of God has transformed you from a slave to a free person, you will be persecuted because of it. And what Paul is saying here is he's talking about Genesis 21. Again, the story of Hagar and Sarah. Now, in Genesis 21, by this time, Isaac has been born. Isaac is the son of Sarah. Isaac has been born. And back in the day, when you, when you give birth to a child, you, you know, like, now we breastfeed for six months, nine months, one year, and we kind of give up. Back in the day, you did it the good way. Breastfed for three years, which means that all of us who are getting, all of us who are still fighting for four months paid leave, six months paid leave, that is the goal. Ask for three years paid leave. <laughs> Three years. Anyway, so um, they decide to throw a party. Talk about throwing parties. They decide to throw a party to celebrate. Yay, this boy is now no longer a baby. He's now a toddler. He's now a grown, growing child. And there, at that party, the son of the slave woman, who is named Ishmael, sees Isaac. And instead of celebrating with everybody, he begins to mock him. It begins to persecute him, like Paul says here. And see, what Paul is showing us is if you've encountered the grace of God, you'll be mocked because of it. You'll be persecuted because of it. Ask yourself, when last when last, were you persecuted because you actually believe in the grace of God? Now, I know Damien just spoke about people in the north who are actually suffering for it. Um, But there's a tendency for us to think that that is all persecution ever is. But Whereas the Bible says, actually, anybody at all, regardless of where you live, anybody at all who has named the name of Christ, who has been joined to Christ, will be persecuted. It comes in all shapes and sizes. It comes sometimes with the insults we receive at office. It comes sometimes with the way people look at us. It comes sometimes with the privileges that we may not be able to get. Sometimes, like our brothers and sisters in the north, it comes at the price of your life. But don't miss this. Anybody who has known Christ will be persecuted. And so the question for you is, when last were you persecuted? We can say all these things about, no, I'm not a slave, and all of that. But when last did you suffer persecution? When last were you ridiculed? For believing in something that the Bible says, for trusting in something about God, when last were you ridiculed about it? We see the second test Paul presents in verse 30. He says, but what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share an inheritance with the free woman's son. Again, Paul is continuing his argument from Genesis 21. And so at that point, Sarah sees this son of the slave woman Um, um, Ishmael mocking her own son Isaac and she says to her husband get rid of that woman and her son because she will not share they will not share the inheritance of my son and Paul brings that again as a test to show whether you have encountered the grace the unlikely grace that is available for unlikely people Paul says are you separated from people who try who try to earn their way to God by the things they do and the things they produce How committed are you in your personal life to eradicating every trace, every ounce of trusting in yourself and your own self-worth and your own self-adequacy to present you before God? Are you constantly considering the ways in which you are at heart a legalist? The ways in which you are trying to substitute the gospel with your own performance or to supplement something before God so that God can actually receive you to himself? Paul says we should separate, get rid, take those things away from us. But also it means in a community of believers like this that we are radical, we are intently serious about the sufficiency of the gospel in and of itself to save us, to complete us, to present us to God. We are radical in eliminating anything that doesn't have to do with the gospel because God has united us, God has joined us as heirs to him. See, one more thing Paul says. So Paul talks about these two women and the fact that their status, one is a slave and one is free. But he says also in the fact that they bear children, one is fruitful and one is barren. And this one is the is the is the you know most surprising of them all because of course Hagar is the one who bears children. Hagar is the one who is able to conceive, and Sarah is not, and so. In that regard, in our, in our own minds, we are thinking, yes, she must surely be the one who is accepted before God. She must surely be the one who is commended, the one who is the good example. But Paul says, no, when it comes to the economy of God, God switches things around. And it becomes the person who actually produces in and of themselves is the person who is not accepted before God. But the person who, who is the barren person, the person who recognizes, man, there is nothing in and of myself that I can produce. There is nothing within me that I can use to earn God's disposition and favor. That is the person that actually receives God's grace. And see, friends, grace is recognizing that, man, I cannot produce anything. Grace is recognizing that I am barren. Like, I cannot produce what God himself can bring about. God must do something. God must come to me in a radical way. And see, what Paul says to us is that it is those who recognize their barrenness that actually receive grace from God. In verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah 54, and there he says, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. It is when you recognize that I am barren, I don't have anything to merit myself before God that God actually comes to you with his grace. And you see, what we discover here, friends, for many of us, it is that your very disqualification, the very thing that disqualifies you from supposedly getting the grace of God is what qualifies you for it. Hagar was fruitful. Hagar was the one, If, like, if, if I were choosing somebody to be able to bring a child to the world that would multiply and, and bring about God's promise. Of course it was Hagar, because Hagar is the one who is fruitful. Hagar is the one who could produce a child. And for 14 years, that was the case. She was able to produce a child, whereas Sarah was barren. Sarah could not produce. And yet God looks at Sarah and says, yes, that very person who cannot produce is the one through whom I will bring about my promise. Friends, your disqualification qualifies you to receive God's grace. Please stop looking at yourself as this person that is messed up and broken and this person that has to somehow put all of their act together to be able to come before God. No, no, no. Just come before God as you are because he knows who you are anyway. He knows who you are anyway and he's not running away from you. He knows who you are and he's coming to you, actively pursuing you and asking you to come. But you see also, friends, when we come to God, recognizing our barrenness and brokenness, God deals with our shame. That's what we see here. And you see, just like in current times, to be barren in biblical times was was a sign of shame. It was like having everything that everybody else, like having nothing that everybody else had. It is going and walking past, and you're walking past in an open place, and everybody's talking about you in whispers, she's barren. And yet God takes that shame, and God redeems it. And for some of us, we have shame in our lives because of our own sin, or because of other people's sin. It doesn't matter. God can take that barrenness, and God can rework it. But the good thing also is that God doesn't just deal with our shame. God makes us fruitful. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that Sarah that Sarah did not have, that qualified her to receive God's grace, was the very thing that God worked through to produce his grace to others? You see, that point of barrenness, that thing that isn't fruitful, that place where you are, you are crying out to God and you're like, God, like I'm messed up, I've broken, I've sinned, I've I've been sinned against. It is in that same place that God is at work to produce his own fruitfulness in your life and to other people. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, Paul talks about receiving comfort from God, so that through the comfort we receive, God Himself might be an extension of comfort to other people. Can I just tell you, if you are here this morning, nothing in your life is wasted. Nothing in your life is wasted. Maybe, yes, you messed up. Maybe, yes, other people messed up. But God is a God who, when we bring our brokenness, when we bring our barrenness to him, God is able to work all of it out. Somehow, I don't know, but God is able to work it out so that that very point of barrenness becomes a point of fruitfulness. You see? trusting in the grace of God in Christ is what reconfigures our status. It's what makes people who have previously been barren become people who are fruitful. It's what makes people who have previously been slaves become people who have been free. It's what takes our brokenness, our shame, our destruction, our errors, our mistakes, and God works it out together in such a way that he's at work powerfully, not just to heal you, but to make you a point of contact to others as well. So maybe you feel like your life is broken and like there are pieces, like you can literally see the pieces in front of you. We serve a God who takes the pieces of our lives and makes a mosaic with it. Maybe you feel like, man, there's a lot of mess and everything is jumbled around. We serve a God who through our mess and all the thing that is convoluted, we serve a God who can make a tapestry out of it. Why don't you just trust him? We feel like we have to gather ourselves together, get our act together. No, God says, no, when we are doing that, no, we are behaving like Hagar. We're not behaving like Sarah. We're not behaving like people who can receive grace from God. You see, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 14. And he's there talking, yes, Luke 14. And he's there talking about how the kingdom of God is like people who have been invited to a feast. And the people that are most likely, the people like we're talking about in high school, I say, yes, most likely to to succeed, most likely to be invited for the party of the year, they turned it down. And it's the people who are most unlikely to be invited are the people who get invited. And what does Jesus say in Luke 14, verse 17? He says, at the time of the banquet, this king sends his servant to tell those who had been invited, he says, come, for everything is now ready. And really, that's the offer of the gospel. That's what true grace does. True grace, is, true grace doesn't say, go and get yourself together. Go and fix up and then come. No, no, no. True grace says, no, come just as you are. Come and receive my help. Come and receive my healing. Come and receive what I alone can do through the barrenness of your life to bring about fullness. You know, it is only by exposing ourselves before God, that we find the healing that we can receive. It is only by acknowledging, like in the words of that song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It is only by recognizing that I have nothing in and of myself that we actually receive the grace of God, the grace that reconfigures our status. So the question for us is, where are you behaving like a slave? Where are you saying that, no, no, I'm not a slave, but yet you are behaving like a slave because you are not being ridiculed. You are not seeing the test of of people persecuting your own life. You are not seeing yourself separating or separated from other things and people that don't trust in God's grace. But also, where are you trusting in your own acts to be able to come up with your own solutions to bring about fruitfulness in your life whereas you're truly barren? Come to God just the way you are. You see, the last question Paul is asking in this passage is, where is your hope? Where is your hope? And so we'll consider the last point, an incredible inheritance. You see, the truth, friends, is that many of us come to God with a Hagar-like approach, like we just want to sort it all out, clean up all our mess, get our acts together, and somehow we can presents ourselves to God. But Paul is showing us that no, it doesn't work. He actually never solves anything. Like it's it's a treadmill, it's a cycle. Think about it. Every time you think that you need to sort out yourself to come before God, and then you actually supposedly sort out yourself to come before God, have you ever actually gone back to God? Because actually what we find is anytime we Sort out ourselves and we see like, oh yes, I think I've sorted out myself. We begin to think, yes, I, I, I'm okay. Like there's nothing wrong with me. All I just need to do is actually just clean up my mess and be stronger. no, Paul shows us, no, 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 that that actually doesn't solve anything. That doesn't deal with what's wrong with us. You see, anytime we use our efforts like Hagar, anytime we use our own mind, our own schemes like Sarah, trying to work out God's, our uh, placing God's scheme of things, trying to fulfill what God alone can do, trying to kind of please God by our own efforts. But like someone who says, yes, I want to travel. I want to actually travel from Lagos to London. But I want to do it by walking." You won't get to Semenboda before you realize this thing is impossible. Because you recognize that, no, I need something. I need help. I need something to transport me from this place where I am to this other place where I want to be. Paul is showing us, friends, that no, no. Grace, true grace, is grace that bears us, not just in the present, but grace that carries us all the way. Not just grace that somehow assists us in our own journey of life as we are going along, but grace that radically alters our trajectory and grace that carries us safely to the end. And so we see in verses 25 and 26, like we see in the table, that Paul again shows us between being a, a Hagar approach and a Sarah approach is that if you are trying, if you are trying to work out your way to God, you're actually going under the old covenant that can, that cannot actually deal with what's wrong with you. You need the new covenant. You need the new covenant applied by the Holy Spirit of God that actually changes your heart. And by the Holy Spirit continues to work in your heart, making you, molding you to be a child of the promise, to be a child of God as you journey along. But Paul also says that no, that, that grace actually carries us somewhere. You see, every time we are trusting in something else, anytime we are trusting in our own efforts, anytime we are trusting our own scheming, we are working ultimately for this earthly Jerusalem. Paul says, No, no. Those who trust in God's true grace are working for the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is an inheritance for them. Look at verse 30. He says, So the scripture says, Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. You cannot. cannot inherit anything before God, ultimately. But you see, the good news is that there is something that the people who are not trusting in themselves will inherit. There is a heavenly Jerusalem. There is a new place that God is preparing. God is sorting out for those who trust in him. And he says in verse, towards the end, he says that, no, that heavenly Jerusalem is above. It is our mother, and that is where we are from. So the question is, Where are you from? Where are you hoping in? Where are you ultimately... Where is the trajectory of your life headed? Where are you trusting in? What is your destination? What is the hope that you have in mind? But you see, if you've been following the story along, you recognize at this time that there really isn't that much of a difference between Hagar and Sarah. Because both of them are women. Both of them eventually bear children. Both of them are wives to Abraham. So there really isn't that much of a difference between Hagar and Sarah except that Sarah actually receives grace. Sarah becomes the person who, even though she was despised, because of nothing that she had done, she receives grace from God. And that is what, if you are a Christian here, that is what God has done for you. God has given you grace that you could not work for. God has given you grace that you could not earn. God has given you grace that you can never lose. Paul says in verse 27, Be glad, barren person. Shout for joy, cry aloud, because you who were the children of the desolate woman, God has made to have many more children than of the person who has a husband. And see, what Paul is doing there is, Paul, like I said earlier, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 54. But if you know numbers very well, what comes before 54 is 53. And Isaiah 53, the Bible actually tells us the story, actually the prophecy of somebody who is going to come, who is going to lay down his own life, who is going to substitute himself so that even though he was a child of the promise, Actually, not just that he was a child, he was the child of the promise. He becomes the one who lays his life down so that those of us who are on the outside can be welcomed in. Even though he was the one who eternally deserved to not be cast away, he becomes the one who is cast away so that those of us who are cast away can come in. And I love these words so much from Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 10, I'll just read from verse 10 all the way down. He says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for, for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spurs with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the righteous, for the transgressors. Verse 1 of chapter 54. Therefore, sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has had a husband, says the Lord. Do you see what God has done for you, Fair Christian? God's grace has come to you who is barren, who is unfruitful. God's grace has come and replaced that barrenness with his own fruitfulness. Not because of what you've done. Not because of what you will do in a thousand lifetimes. God has made a way because of his own son, Christ Jesus, who has come to us. But the promise, friends, is not just for this life. It is for eternity because as we read more and more in the story of the Bible, we see that God is not just here with us. God does not just give us his Holy Spirit, but he does that as a down payment of what is yet to come. so in Revelation 21, verse 3, he tells us that there is a new heaven, a new Jerusalem that is coming. And what is ultimately significant about that place is not just that there is no brokenness. It's not just that there is no barrenness. It's not just that there is no more sin and suffering. No, no. What is significant about that place is that God himself dwells there. God himself is our inheritance. God himself is our highest prize and hope. God himself is the only one that we ever need God himself is the one who fulfills all of our longings. Why are you tempted to be like Hagar today? Why are you tempted to see yourself, somehow put yourself in the people who are most likely to succeed? Bible storyline is no, no. Grace comes to those who are most unlikely to succeed. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.